But I want to back up and review kind of the flow of where we've been in our story series uh, so far. Uh, every, how many of you guys like to read, like just for fun, narratives and that kind of thing? And uh, I don't know, my, my, my genres are science fiction and fantasy. But uh, every, every great story that you read has this point where, if you think about it, everything goes bad, right? Like there's something that needs to be resolved. It's like a point of conflict or like a point of desperation where you really think that it can't get worse than it already is, right? You're like, it can't get worse than this. And then it does, you know, like you're like, okay, they try to put a happy ending with Luke's arm cut off at the end of Empire Strikes Back, but you're like, Han got taken, you know, and the Empire's winning. It's so dark, you know, and like what's going to happen next? Nearly all movies usually follow this story arc where everything's falling apart, it's going downhill fast. Every war movie, every action movie, even romantic comedies, everything falls apart, right? And they're like, they get in some situation. Every Disney cartoon, use your favorite Christmas movie template if you like. Clark Griswold's Christmas Vacation, right? How many, who's seen it? If you haven't seen it, wow, okay. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, take a look around you. You're at the threshold of, don't say it. Don't. If you don't know what that is, then you have to go watch it. Before it finally resolves in the most unlikely way, right? Like Uncle Eddie, how is he going to do anything good, right? The least likely candidate, he saves the day by kidnapping Clark's boss and brings him to his house on Christmas Eve. So in all of these situations, all these stories, these movies, there's this part where it looks like all hope is lost, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yay! <laughs> right? It's a dark time in Israel's history. And we left off with David becoming king, and then he ruled for 40 years, and then his son Solomon becomes king, right? He rules for 40 years, and then after that, some other players come on the scene, and I want to introduce you to them today. First is there's, there's this guy who's kind of the rising star in Solomon's workforce, and his name is Jeroboam. Can you say Jeroboam with me? Jeroboam, a name that's not going to make the list of top ten baby names this year or any year. Uh, and he tries to usurp the throne from Solomon, and he tries to do it a bit too soon. And Solomon then rallies his army, and Jeroboam runs away to Egypt. And at the same time, Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. So say Rehoboam. You got Jeroboam, Rehoboam, okay? And you're like, what is with the Boam thing? I don't know. Uh, he is the rightful heir to the throne. And I want to read to you. We're going to like, we're going to like drink from a fire hose today from the scriptures because we, it, it's hard to like, if you read chapter 14 beforehand, and that's what we intend you to do, for you to do. Next week, we're going to do chapter 15. You read chapter 15 and come back here and you'll be a little bit more the wiser on what we're going to be covering, right? But let's start in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 27. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of, his da of David, his father. Now, Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. That phrase, labor force, is coded language. Labor force means Solomon had made slaves. He had made slaves out of his own people, the tribe of Joseph. And we'll move on. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, say that one with me, Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way wearing a new cloak. Okay. 
And the two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. And then he said to Jeroboam, take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. And I have not walked in obedience to me or done what is right in the eyes of the Lord, nor kept my decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. So we see here that God has made him a king for all his life because of David's faithfulness. He's made Solomon a king for all of his life for his dad's faithfulness. David's faithfulness is still showing up even after he's gone, after he's dead and gone and buried. Solomon recognized that at first. We covered this last time. If, you, if you're new with us or if you, didn't, you missed it uh, before Christmas, you can go online and go on our app, go on our website, go on our YouTube channel, it's every, you know, all those places, and you can watch those, those sermons, those teachings. Solomon recognized what he was given from his father David at first, but then it's like he just forgets that and walks away, and he doesn't, he doesn't care. Verse 35, I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you. You will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel if you do. Here's that phrase. This always happens. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon then tried to kill Jeroboam, like you do. This, this sounds really familiar, right? You had... You had um, Saul before David, and he was trying to kill David, and then, you know, he got the same thing going on. Jeroboam, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. So Jeroboam tries to take the throne from Solomon too soon. He, this prophet Ahijah comes to him, this is going to be you, and he just like jumps, jumps into it, and it's too soon. Solomon rallies support, and Jeroboam has to flee. Meanwhile, Solomon dies. He dies, he passes away, and his son Rehoboam gets, to, gets set to take the throne. And we're going to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now I want you to just stop there and think about that. They ask him to do this, right? And he's like, go away for three days and then come back to me. If he has to take three days to think about it, whether or not he's going to be kind to his people, what does that say about him? Is he a nice guy? Come on. Let's see what he decides. This is, okay. 
Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father, Solomon, during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, today, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Take that, you know. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, and the king said, come back to me in three days. As he had said, come back to me in three days, the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders, and he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I'm going to make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for, his, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the town of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, you know, I already read that. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. There's that phrase again. What does that mean? Slaves. And this time it tells us that Rehoboam has not only made slaves of the tribe of Joseph, but of his very own tribe, Judah, as well. This guy is a mess, okay? I want you to see that. He's, he's a mess. But all Israel, so he sends out, Rehoboam sends out uh, Adoniram, but all Israel stoned him to death. He's like, look, here, you're going to do that. Ah, I'm dead, okay? King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. So you see the back and forth here between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and how they're handling the people. Here's the deal. Rehoboam, he has the potential to do truly great things for his country, for his people. He has an absolute ton cash hoard of money. He could free people. He could give them purpose. He could give them dignity. He could let them thrive to grow in all kinds of ways through diplomacy and trade and technology. And the elders say to him, if, you're gonna, if you just treat these people kindly, be a servant to them. Take a step back. Put them first. Don't push them so hard. Serve them just a little, and they will serve you in return. You will win them over if you do this. But he doesn't. He takes the advice of his friends, these young men, and they're like, if, you, if they think your dad was bad, then you're, you just need to go dominate them even more. I want to show you guys a concept here. We talked about this the last time. Let's put up this innovation cycles. It doesn't quite fit there. Maybe it fits better over here. I shared this concept with you guys last time. It talked about my grandfather 
and all the amazing technological advances that he saw in his lifetime and how he was utterly amazed by flight, space travel, but how my mom and dad grew up with those things and were a little impressed, but then they got used to those things. And then by the time I came along, my generation came along, it's like we're not even aware of the leaps and bounds we've progressed through as a species over the last hundred years. My wife recently overheard a conversation that happened right here in this room between someone in our church who was older and someone who was younger, and the older person told the younger person to give them a call on their landline. (laughs) And the younger person said, what's a landline? Do you get how much we take for granted because it just changes, you know? And I told you guys that I'm amazed by these vertical takeoffs and landings. Let's put this spaceport thing. I told you guys, your, your kids, my, grand, my grandkids are going to be used to spaceports where you can launch from Seattle and land in, you know, in Dubai in an hour and a half. These are the ones that are already here that this could happen at. SpaceX is now putting these rockets into space and they land on their, o- on their own they launched, uh, let's do that video, Emily. Yeah, I mean, that, that is just, you watch them take off. You see the two boosters on either side of the rocket. Goes up. They launched 61 of these rockets in 2022. They want to launch 100 this year. And they come back down. That's not graphics. That's not graphics. It just lands. <laughs> you could leave Seattle and be in London in 45 minutes. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids will think nothing of this if this happens. Yeah. Ford, Kia. Let me put this one slide up here for you. Ford, Kia, GM, Volkswagen, Tesla, Honda, Toyota, Mercedes, BMW, Nissan, Polestar, which is Volvo, Lucid, Rivian, Hyundai, all make and sell fully electric battery-powered vehicles. Let's go to the next slide. And they all have plans to make even more models and transition from making ICE cars. Have you heard that term? ICE cars, internal combustion engine, ICE Internal combustion engine gas cars are going to transition this to only making electric cars in the next five to ten years. You think that's not possible? Think again. It will happen. You know how many pay phones? You know how you guys remember pay phones? Does anybody not remember pay phones? <laughs> Is there one in West Seattle? There might, I think there used to be. I don't know. <clears throat> they are a thing of the past, right? What those electric vehicles means is that one day, let's go to the next slide, the gas stations are going to be like the payphones. They're going to become as nostalgic as that. You will just plug your car in at night like you do this. That's, that's how you'll do it, you know? Or you'll charge it at a converted gas station. This one right here is in Maryland. It was put in in 2019. The, guy, the, the owner was like, there's a high percentage of electric vehicles in their neighborhood. And he's like, I'm just going to switch over. I'm going to switch over. Those, those are electric. 
chargers, you know? I can't believe that we've developed this kind of tech so quickly. It's amazing. But my kids and my grandkids, they will think nothing of this. And this is what we see with David and Solomon and Rehoboam. Rehoboam and his friends have benefited so much from the progress and the technological and financial prosperity that was handed down to them. They're now sitting pretty and holding on to a certain amount of status. It was the air they breathed, the status that they had, the position that they had. It was just the air that they breathed. And they forgot who and what it took to get them there. Right? What's a landline? What's a pager? <laughs> right? I, just, I remember one guy. This, it was so uh, kind of ironic. This guy in my high school, he, would, he wore leather, everything, and he drove a Harley. He was like the one guy who rode a Harley in high school. And he would show up in the 90s, and he'd get there after school. Uh, he'd go right to his bike after school, and he'd, he'd be like, I got my pager. <laughs> no one else had one. He's the only one that had one. The next year, like 20 people had a pager. And I'm like, what the heck do you need a pager for? You have to go downstairs by the Coke machine where the, where the cafeteria was to, the, to pay phones. <laughs> you know, because you got paged. And then you had to pay a quarter to call back whoever it was because you didn't have a cell phone, right? Our kids are going to be like, you mean you put highly explosive flammable liquids into an engine in your car to get around when you were a kid, that's crazy. How is that even allowed? You guys had a death wish, you know? They're going to think we're nuts. Rehoboam, he forgot what got him where he was and the status that he was enjoying. So he didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't care about the people who helped him to get there. And all he and his young friends cared about was their own status in life, right? which is totally different than the world we live in, right? And I would suggest that we live in a time in the world where there's lots of people in the workforce now or who are moving into the workforce now who have a massive sense of entitlement. They believe they're entitled to a certain lifestyle. I'll show you this advertising video. They expect that the lifestyle they want will be provided for them and it trickles down into every aspect of our lives. You just look at the advertisements that are on TV, on the internet, on YouTube, on the newspaper, wherever you get them. I, I can't remember how many thousands of advertisements we are bombarded with every day. It's, it's like this. We'll help you fixate. All this video is showing you. I just love this guy right here, don't you? I didn't put the whole clip in there. It's an old Coke commercial. His life is just terrible. He's got kids that are young. He's got no energy. He can't sleep. He's sitting there playing. All the toys are strewn around. He drinks the Coke, and he's like, yes! They're all like, yes! This is what will happen to your life if you drink Coke and you have kids, you know? Uh, you fixate. What they do is they make you fixate on what you don't have. It will bolster your feeling of inadequacy. I don't have that, so I don't have the status anymore, right? And we end up in this round of marketing manipulation, and, it, and where, it, where it lands is you deserve this, whatever we're selling you. You deserve it. You deserve it. And we sit back and we go, yeah, yeah, I do deserve it. You deserve a break today. McDonald's used to say that. 
you deserve it, really? I deserved a McDonald's, okay? Yeah, I do. And you can have it your way right away. Do you remember that one? That was Burger King, right? This is, I, it tells you how long ago I watched commercials. I don't watch commercials anymore. Like, like that's another thing that's changed, you know? This is how our life is beginning to be structured. And one of the worst things that my kids, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, one of the worst things they're going to have to fight is entitlement. And here's what I would suggest. If you look at the story of Israel, as soon as there was a group of people who started forcing what they thought they deserved onto other people, I deserve this, so I'm going to force you to do this because I deserve what I want. And it polarized the country. That would never happen now, would it? <laughs> Not in this country. <laughs> oh no, he said country. Is he going to say politics? Well, yeah, politics, economically, socially, we're more polarized than we ever have been before. This is a space where that, all of that is secondary to Jesus. It all falls by the wayside if you follow Jesus. All of it, it's secondary to Jesus. This is why it bothers Christians. I tell them your first allegiance is to Jesus. Nothing else takes that place. And every other position you have on things should flow from your very real relationship with Jesus and a knowledgeable understanding of what Jesus was up to in the world. Which is, first of all, what? Love and saving us. And second of all, asking us to love and serve others. So what's going on in our country now or any country in the last decade, two decades, three decades, right now in the future? It is nothing new. It is nothing new. What was going on in Israel at the time of David, Solomon, Rehoboam, it's just repeating itself now. If you don't serve the people, the people get angry, <laughs> you know, one way or the other. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Jesus comes first. Forget how you got where you are and how, you, how who came before you paved the way for you. Settle into a life of entitlement and expectation and no awareness or appreciation of the past and then the air around you is what you, that's what you breathe. You breathe that. I expect, therefore, I deserve this. The result of which is polarization and destruction. And that's what Rehoboam did to his people. And it's our culture. And as soon as we start believing this kind of lie for our life, then we're in trouble because that lie is all about self-preservation. Self-preservation at the expense of loving others and caring for others, and serving others, and taking care of others. If you do that, by the way, you don't have time for anything else. And the world's a better place, because you're putting it back together. You're joining God with what he's already up to in the neighborhood. It's not about making people, if it's not about making people around me better, look, if you'll live your life in such a way that you're always looking to make the lives of others better, around you, encouraging them and meeting their needs, your life will be full. Your life will be full. And you won't have to care about any of that other stuff. Fuller than you can ever imagine. But as soon as you 
live your life where you think you deserve whatever it is, a certain lifestyle, a certain status, house, whatever, vacations, car, whatever, whatever it is, I deserve it. As soon as you start living that way, you leave people out. You polarize people. And that's what happened in Israel. Rehoboam refused to listen to the council of elders. And when we forget to listen to the people who built the wealth that we enjoy, whatever that form that takes in your life, it's very, very dangerous if you forget where it came from. So that's Rehoboam. Now Jeroboam, he's not much better than Rehoboam. Check this out in 1 Kings 12, 25. It says, Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. So he's sitting there saying to himself, he's saying, if he's being honest, I'm insecure. I'm scared that everyone's going to abandon me. And what he starts doing is he starts making decisions out of that place of insecurity and fear. And this is what happens if you read on. If these people go up after sac- and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made, check this out, he made two golden calves. <laughs> and he said to the people, is it, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Seriously, so again, what's the deal with golden calves in these people? Like, why is it always a cow? Like, I don't get it. Uh, and you know what? You'd think he, he would do, be better than this, but he puts these calves in two places. So, like, he puts one in the north and one in the south because the people have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple, right? And, and he's like, oh, well, if I make these calves and tell you it's okay to do it here and do it here— then you're good, right? It says, one he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites, to which you should all be going, what the heck is this guy doing? Just think about it for a minute. How, how do you get loyalty from people? How do you get loyalty from people? Give them what they want. You give them what they want. They'll be loyal to you. He is negotiating loyalties, trying to take away his own fear and security. If I make priests of, of different peoples, not the Levites, God told us only the Levites should be the priests. If I make priests out of all these people, then they won't leave me and abandon me. They won't go back to Jerusalem because they've got priests and altars and idols right here. They won't turn their back on family, you know, because I've given them what they need. But Jeroboam, Jeroboam did. He turned his back on the family of God, his people, and he, he institutes these idols. When you call yourself a worshiper of God, if that God is real, you don't get to pick how you worship him. God says, this is how you worship me. And when God says, here's how you worship me, you don't have the right. You never have the right to change it. You can't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, sure, but I'm going to do this over here, even though you said this is how to do it. And God's going to say, guess what? That 
is not worship. And i got to tell you that in our world today, in our context, there are a whole lot of Christians walking around trying to worship God any old way they want to. And maybe they haven't got a golden calf statue. <laughs> you know, anybody else got a golden calf statue? No? That's probably just because we don't have enough gold to do it. <laughs> right? Because if we did, we would. And we do in other ways anyway. We don't get to pick how we worship God. We don't get to negotiate with God's standards. And Jeroboam tries to do it his own way. How do you think that's going to work out for him? Not very well. Rehoboam rejects the advice of the wise ones and only thinks about himself. Jeroboam tries to worship God any old way he wants to. Well, let's read on because it gets worse. Remember I told you it keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse. Verse 32, he instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month like the festival held in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. Who instituted the festival? Jeroboam. Jeroboam did. Did he have the right to do that? No. Who sacrificed on the altar? Supposed to be a priest. Who did it? Jeroboam did. Did he have the right to do that? No. On top of, here's where you can do that at these golden calf statues that aren't in the temple in Jerusalem. He's negotiating loyalties, and it sounds spiritual. But it's not. On the surface, it looks spiritual, but it's not. It says, This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Rehoboam was all about himself. And so is Jeroboam. It's just a different expression that's all rooted in the same thing. Influence and power is what they want. Influence and power, if it's given to you, it's given to you to make people's lives better, not to leverage it so that you can get ahead. And we live in a culture that invites you to take what's yours and leverage it so that you can get more and more and more and more. And the issue with that is that God has an economy, and his economy doesn't work that way. His economy is about taking care of others, taking care of the least of these. It's not how God works. That's not how God's community works, where you just get more and more and more and more for yourself. It's not about having or not having even, because I think you'll agree with this. No matter how, how we slice up the social structures that are going on around us, there's always going to be people who have more, and there's always going to be people who have less. And... We are supposed to bridge that gap. And there are people who can handle money, and there are people who can't handle money. There are people who, if you gave them a million bucks, right, next year they'd make that into 10 million bucks by next year. And you people who you gave a million bucks, next year they'd have zero, right? There's, that's always going to be the case. It's not about having things. That is not the problem. The problem is when you have things and you leverage your status, your position, your stuff, your wealth, your ideas, your ability to influence others, you leverage all that to make your own life secure at the expense of making your community better. That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the mistake these guys are making. We often assume that, like, okay, riches might be a blessing from God. But I would suggest that wealth 
And if you don't think you're wealthy, I mean, you know this deep down. We, we live in the wealthiest country in the world. Comparatively speaking, we are at the top. No matter where you are in our country, we're almost always at the top. I would suggest that having wealth is actually a burden. It is a burden for the Christian having, because having wealth is a sacred responsibility. It's a sacred responsibility to truly steward it as God invites you to. Wealth and power and influence and status, you have a sacred responsibility if you have those things. The problem with Rehoboam and Jeroboam is they had that and they're using their status to advance, advance themselves at the expense of their own community to the point at which they are making slaves, not even of others, which is horrible, but of their own people. Anytime you do that, you polarize your community because you're forcing people to take a side, to disagree or agree with you in the way you're doing things. You're forcing people to a standard where they have to buy into whatever it is you're selling, whatever you're standing for, and maybe they can't buy into it. And when we do that, we create this tension in the community, this drama, because we're focusing on ourselves. Now, Rehoboam, he has a son. Solomon, so if you go back to Solomon, was he a good king or a bad king? He was kind of a good slash bad king, right? David, kind of the same thing. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is he a good king or a bad king? He's bad. He's bad. Rehoboam's son is a bad king. Rehoboam's grandson is named Asa. Let's read about him for a minute. 1 Kings chapter 15. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Now, David's not his dad. He's like his great-great-grandpa, right? Great-great-great-grandpa. But he says he's the son of him. Why? Because he's doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. This is a really interesting connection, right? David is his great-great-grandfather, and he did right. And it's been like three generations since any leader did right in the eyes of the Lord. Three generations. Man. It says he expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother Makah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image of the worship of Asherah. Holy cow, he just took down his mother-in-law. Woo, yikes. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. Do you think he learned something from all those who came before him? You think he learned something? All the, all the, all the, the dad, his dad, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. I think here's what he learned. For many of us, if you think about your life, you were handed a worldview, a way to see things and understand things. 
by your parents or whoever it was that raised you. We have moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandmothers, grandfathers, great-grandparents who set a stage for us. And they gave us a way to reason the world. And what Asa realized is simply this. You don't have to do it the way they did it. You don't have to do it the way they did it. If they were faithful to the Lord, take a hold of that and find a way to pass it on and increase it. But if your dad or mom or grandparents, great-grandparents was something, you know, they were something or they did something that was not good, that does not destine any of us to their same purpose or their same outcome. Thank goodness, right? You have the power to change your destiny with the help of God, the Holy Spirit, to be faithful to the Lord even when people before you were not. You have that ability to be faithful. And conversely, you have the power to destroy the Lord's work in your family when they were faithful and you choose not to be. You can, you can ruin it all. And that's, we see this really dark time and then Asaph finally says, enough is enough. I think I can do this different. I don't have to do it the way they did it. I don't have to take the advice of my friends who want me to just, you know, scourge my people with scorpions and keep this slavery machine going. I don't have to do that. I don't have to worship false idols and false gods in my life. I can lead these people back to the heart of God. So we do things a little bit different in here if you're new with us. We put these tables up every week because um, we're convinced that discipleship does not happen in rows. It happens in circles when you have to look in the eye of someone else across the table and you get to know them and you ask them about your life. So it might be a little awkward for you even if you're a regular, <laughs> right? Um, and that's okay. So I want to invite you into this table discussion this morning and have that conversation with each other about how you can be faithful when those who preceded you were not and how if, if they were good, you can increase what you learned from them. If they were bad, you don't have to keep doing what they were doing. Nobody's fully one or the other, usually, <laughs> The question is, have you been faithful? Have you been a saw in your life? Second, if you haven't been faithful, where's that coming from? Where's that coming from? Obviously, it starts from the self. It starts from within you. But where are you trying to find different ways of being okay with God that God didn't say was the way to do it? Like you're like trying to reason out, well, I know you told me to do it this way, but I want to make an excuse or I just want to tweak that a little bit because it doesn't quite... You know, it doesn't jive with me. So I'm sure you're okay with that, God, you know. Are you listening to the people around you who have wisdom and then you don't follow it? <laughs> Is that what you're doing? Because it's all about you. Those types of things. So I want to put these questions up on the board, Emily. And I'm going to pray.